0: Hello and welcome to the 7th Series Podcast, where we talk about Ashtanga Yoga and family life. The show is produced in Melbourne, Australia, by me, your host, Gaynor Stanisich. Hello, welcome and thanks for joining me. In this episode, I interview Katie Wright. She's been a student of Ashtanga Yoga since about 2005. While she's dabbled in teaching yoga, her main profession is as a writer She's originally from the UK and currently lives in France with her partner. Two years ago, Katie gave birth to their daughter, Iris. Being a writer, Katie takes us on a journey through her experience of pregnancy, birth and postpartum. She shares in detail the research she discovered during her pregnancy and postpartum that she also shared for Stanger practitioners in a blog that she wrote. Katie also shares her experience of having a baby while living abroad the language barrier creating a challenge during antenatal classes and later the isolation it brought. Katie was also aware of the differences in attitudes and approaches to birth in France compared to the UK. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi Katie, how are you? I'm feeling really good, thank you. Thanks for joining me today. To start off with, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you live, who's in your family and what you do? So
1: I live in France. It's not my um, home country. I'm from England, but I live in France with my partner who is French. We live in Brittany, which is on the West Coast. And we have a little girl, Iris or Iris, as we say in France, and she is now 20 months old. There's just the three of us and the plan is that it will stay just the three of us <laughs> she's our first and our last in terms of work i am a freelance writer i'm a copywriter predominantly i used to work for the bbc um, but after about 11 years working for the bbc i did an eat pray love i didn't realize quite what a stereotype i was at the time um, but i ended a 10-year relationship packed in my job, packed up my bags and off I went travelling and it was on my travels where I met this dashing French man. Yeah, here I am in France now, several years later living with him and working as a freelance writer, so still using my writing skills. Um, I was teaching yoga but that's currently not possible because I still need to build up my uh, level of French.
0: Tell us a little bit about how you first came to yoga or Ashtanga Yoga.
1: I first came to yoga when I was 17 years old. I always had a feeling that I was going to practice yoga. I don't really know where that came from, but apparently my mum did practice yoga when I was a young child. Um, And certainly when I lived with my dad, when I was a little bit older, my stepmom was doing lots of yoga. At the time I was saving up to go traveling with, with a boyfriend. And I was in a cheap bookshop and I found a book on yoga and it had a 12-week plan and it all seemed quite straightforward. And I, I used that book, taught myself yoga as much as I could from the book, um, while I saved up for this, this trip that me and my boyfriend were going on. And I'd take the book into the graveyard behind my dad's house and do my practice. And from that point, there were a few years where I kind of went in and out of the practice, you know, working with different teachers. I think it was around 2005 when I was living in York at that point and the teacher whose classes I'd been going to, she, to be really fair to her, I still have a lot to thank her for. She noticed that I seemed to have a preference, I suppose, for the, the more dynamic movements. And obviously I was quite young as well at that time. So at 2005, I was 25 at that point. And she said, you know, there's a teacher in York, he's called Rob Ledley and he teaches a style of yoga called Ashtanga and you should really go and try that because I think, I think it might appeal to you. And I went and as everybody says from that moment on, I was hooked. <laughs> so I was practicing with Rob for a couple of years when um, he had to have a hip replacement, a double hip replacement. In fact, he'd done a lot of karate in his earlier years. And he singled out me and another student to take over his classes (laughs) for the time that he was going to be getting better from from this operation. So he he labelled as his left hip and his right hip and he he trained us up as best as he could and we we sort of looked after his classes for a few weeks while he was out of action. And that was it for a few years. Um, And I went back to my practice and I enjoyed being a student and I didn't really ever have any intention to be a teacher until... I met somebody one day who'd been in one of those classes that I'd been looking after. And she said, are you teaching yet? I said, well, no, of course not. I work at the BBC, that's not what I do. She said, oh, but you should. And she was so um, persuasive, I suppose, and bowled me over a little bit with nice things she said. It planted a seed. Um, And it was still a few years after that when, before I finally thought to myself, I am gonna do some teacher training. I would like to teach yoga. Um, and at that point, I did a TT with Brian Cooper, who people might know from his book, The Art of Adjusting. Um, that was in Edinburgh, up in Scotland. And that was around 2011. So i had been practicing Ashtanga for maybe six years at that point and began teaching. So yoga has been in my life for quite a long time, really, and Ashtanga for quite a long time. And, and it still is, thankfully.
0: What drew you to the practice or what kept you going back?
1: At the beginning, when I was just starting out with Hatha Yoga and switching classes and trying out different things, although to be fair, there wasn't actually that much around at that point, yeah, I was dipping in and out of yoga quite a bit. But then once I'd found Ashtanga, that's when I think I developed more consistency in my practice. And the thing for me, I am somebody who likes to move. I think Ashtanga, as we all know, it does. It has a tendency to attract people who who are busy bees, and we need to do something with our energy. Um, I'm somebody who finds that meditation through movement. I never really did the practice because I wanted to do fancy postures, but obviously there's a very pleasing element to finding your way into a new posture. I think it's probably the consistency it gave me. It's given me in my life, and especially since then, since I've done lots of travelling and had various turbulent events in my life, I think that Ashtanga is, it's given me something solid to take through those moments. There's something about stepping onto your mat and knowing exactly where you are, those reassuring four corners and the practice itself. You know where you are with it. You can gauge your mood, your energy. I just find it a very useful yardstick, I suppose, by which to measure how I am. And uh, yeah, it's this consistency, It's something that I can depend on. Of course, it's changing all the time, but at the same time, it's not at all. It's my practice and it goes where I do. And I feel a little bit if I enter a new relationship, or when I have entered new relationships, I have kind of come into those relationships with a warning, you know, it's not just me and you, it's me, you and yoga it plays that kind of role in my life.
0: You said you met your partner traveling when did you move to France and then have you been teaching since you've been in France?
1: So we met in was it, 2014 in Sri Lanka and um, a lovely story where I was walking back from a surf and this handsome man went past on his scooter and stopped and asked if I knew of a nice guest house and why yes, of course I do. The one I'm staying at is very nice, um, and so began this this extended holiday romance that's turned into a lifelong commitment. We continued to travel together for a, maybe two two and a half years, uh, mainly in Thailand and Cambodia and Sri Lanka, and um, and we were coming back to France in between, and I'd pop back to England. And we decided in the end it was time to settle. I mean my original plan when I went traveling was to travel for a year, um, and I had money from the house that had been sold at the end of my previous relationship. and I'd always told myself, when I get down to a certain amount of money, I'll stop the traveling and I need to set up freelance. Um, so that time did eventually come. but I managed to eke out the money for quite a long time before I actually knuckled down and got serious again it was January 2017 about then when we came to France and started building our lives here. with The the baby subject had been on and off the cards, but it was about a year later when when we finally got down to actually trying for a baby. So my teaching career is very much on hold at the moment, but a lot of the writing work I do, quite a few of my clients are yoga teachers, yoga schools, yoga retreat organisers. So I get to write about yoga a lot. But teaching, there's no direct teaching at the moment.
0: You started to plan or decided to have a family. How was that journey for you in terms of fertility?
1: Uh, so I was 37 when I got pregnant. And at that age, I think, like a lot of people, you do start to think, OK, if we're going to do this, we really need to do think about doing it soon. Um, and added to that, I had... My left ovary had been severely reduced because I'd had an ovarian cyst that was removed um, a few years before. And they told me at the time, I still don't know if it's actually true, but they did tell me at the time that one of the outcomes of that might be that my menopause would arrive earlier than it would have done otherwise. So I started thinking, okay, I'm 37. My menopause is potentially going to start sooner than it would have done. Um, We should probably get on with this if if this is what we want to do. And we had all the serious discussions that you do when you're making a choice as big as this. And and then the process began, and I have to say – somebody told me with the best intention to treat my body as though it was already pregnant. So to try to soften and create this kind of inviting space for a baby to to move into. Um, And it threw me a little bit because I was so, I was so used to my Ashtanga practice. I was so used to being able to move in quite a dynamic and athletic way. And it it, it just took me out of my comfort zone. Softening things just threw me completely. And I started to get a little bit, not obsessive, but I was just, just bogged down in what I should and shouldn't be doing. And all I needed to do was just back off, like a lot of people. That came in the form for me of an in depth training program I did at Mysore Yoga Paris. And I'd wanted to do this for a while, partly with a view to teaching again, just to top up my knowledge. Um, and it came in two parts this training and I decided actually let's hold off on the baby project just for a few months because I want to do part one of this uh, training program not pregnant and then I'll do the second part potentially pregnant and of course as soon as I let go of the idea of being pregnant it happened (laughs) and I think you know that there is a lesson probably for all of us it's that kind of non-grasping non-attachment to an idea and soon as you let nature take its course it, it knows exactly what to do from the moment that we decided to get pregnant to me being pregnant there were only two menstrual cycles it was it was really fast quite a lot faster than I'd expected and, and then I was pregnant and I have to say I was lucky again I've been I've been lucky with throughout my pregnancy I was lucky to have quite a straightforward pregnancy uh, of course I felt tired and Yeah, you don't feel great, you can feel a bit nauseous. But I was never sick, I wasn't sick once. I think the worst thing for me, frankly, was the constipation. The main thing for me was adapting my mindset, not adapting to any new physical changes, really, at the beginning. But luckily, as I said, I'd started with this course, and as it happened, the two teachers on the course, the main person at Mysore Yoga Paris is Kia Nadamiya, who runs the Sharla, but she also works with a lady called Paula Fernandez, and she has a strong background in anatomy and prenatal care, and they had taught other students who had been pregnant and done this course, and so they were fully prepared for me to come along with a pregnant body, and actually I got so much guidance from them. Paula especially really took me under her wing, and it helped me to develop my practice in a way that was appropriate, but allowed me to continue practicing and but importantly, to practice with confidence, that actually came at a really, really good time
0: for me. What were some of the key take-home things that you picked up from having that guidance?
1: There was one thing in particular that was is probably a little bit con- controversial without the full explanation that they gave that you don't need to worry quite so much. I mean, don't get me wrong, they weren't saying, you know, jump back, jump forward. They'd issued a lot of the guidance that most pregnancy yoga teachers would. But this thing about twisting, again, they'd always say, if it doesn't feel good, don't do it. But there was a lot of reassurance in terms of, if if a fetus will continue once it's going to grow, it will grow. There are lots of reasons why it won't. But probably doing a twist in your yoga practice isn't going to be the thing that will cause it to not embed properly in the, the lining of the womb. And to place emphasis more on keeping the pelvis stable. I mean that's at the centre of all the teaching is the maintaining the plumb line or the midline and neutrality of the, the pelvis. And actually if you're doing that and you soften your belly and the twist is coming from further up anyway, then you're very, very unlikely to dislodge anything. So there were explanations much better than the one I've just given. That gave me confidence and removed some of the fear that I'd built up for myself, really, in terms of what I could and couldn't do and what would lead to a miscarry pregnancy. So, that that was one of the main things. But one of the other things I took away and, and I used throughout my pregnancy and then post pregnancy was a, a breathing technique. And I, I put it on my one of my Instagram posts and part of the blog I wrote about my postnatal primary practice. And I call them belly pops because it just seemed to describe what was happening on a, on a visual level. And this is the contraction of the Moolabandha and the Udayana bandha to draw the belly in and then the release of everything as the belly pops back out. And this helps to maintain the muscles throughout the uh, pelvic sling and to maintain some of the abdominal strength. And of course, it worked really well as a meditation so yeah, I got, I got a lot from being on that course, but I think the main thing I came away with was just the confidence to continue and to listen to myself and not necessarily go by what I was reading everywhere, but to go by what felt good and, and continue my practice with confidence.
0: You mentioned that one of your biggest hurdles was your mindset. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you had to adjust
1: it really was a transition just from being in a body that I, I was so used to after 12 years or so of practicing Ashtanga, I was so used to being in a body that was really strong and nimble. <laughs> and it was such a, a gear change to suddenly be in a body that was carrying a precious little gift. I think that was the hardest thing for me, was not feeling as robust and feeling already that there was something else that was a lot more important than me and my practice. There was this other little thing inside, and it it just unsettled me, I suppose, because already you, I suppose, it's the first point when you get that sense of responsibility that comes with being a parent. And, it, and yeah, it rocks your world a little bit there. Uh, and it was about changing my mindset. And actually, pregnancy and motherhood has been really good for changing my mindset because like a lot of people who practice practice ashtanga we can all get a little bit attached to the practice itself certainly for me i was attached to being in this strong and nimble body and and it has it's been a great lesson to put somebody else before myself and to let go of that attachment to the physical practice to open up my practice of the other limbs of yoga, yoga a little bit more and um, to be more flexible in my attitude and to to accept that If you haven't been on your yoga mat that day, doesn't mean you haven't practised yoga that day. (laughs) You know, there are lots of other ways that you're doing that as well. I I think our children teach us a lot, and it it really does begin right from the moment that we conceive.
0: Tell us a little bit more about your pregnancy and how you practised during that time. Did you actually practise in your first trimester? Did you sort of find a way of comfortably practising during that time?
1: I literally had got pregnant. I think I was five weeks pregnant when I went to the training programme I did in Paris. And um, and I was so excited to come back with all this confidence about how I could practice and how I could adapt things and and what I could do with my, my primary uh, series practice. And I managed to sustain that, I think, for about another two weeks after I got home. And then one day I was doing my practice in, in the garden. It's a nice spring day. And um, I got to Navasana, laid down and went to sleep. <laughs> and that was, it was the, uh, the beginning of the end, I suppose, for a good few weeks after that. Like so many people, my energy just dipped completely. And it was almost as though I didn't really have a choice about that. For the next few weeks, I had a much reduced practice and thankfully, a big part of the training program in Paris had been pranayama. And so I had a a sequence that had been taught and given to me specifically that I was able to use. Um, And I combined that with if I had the energy on, on, on some days with some gentle warm ups and with a few basic postures gradually building in a few soft sun salutations, but it was a really, really gentle practice for a few weeks. And then I think I got to my second trimester, and again, like a lot of people, my energy seemed to come back, and I thought, great, great, I'm back on my mat, I can do my primary series again. (laughs) That old attachment hadn't disappeared completely. And soon developed a painful sacroiliac joint on the left side. And I suppose that was probably down to the relaxing that was in my body. Not entirely sure exactly what brought it on, but I guess I was just a little bit more vulnerable in that respect. So again, I had to modify my practice. And for me, that meant removing a lot of the external hip rotations from the primary series, which when you start to look through it, you realize is quite a lot of the primary series. <laughs> um, so I had quite a limited practice there. And the standing, I mean, even with Trikonasana, you know, um, uh, Utita has the Dasana, taking the leg out to the side. Um, there, were, there were quite a few things that I had to remove. And even with uh, Warrior One, I was having to step through into a high lunge instead of putting the back heel down um, to try and basically, I mean, It's kind of what we should be doing all the time. But there was extra focus on maintaining the the stability and evenness through my hips. So that kind of developed as a practice. In the same way that I developed a postnatal primary practice, I kind of developed a prenatal primary practice as well. For me, I I have done that at other times in my life as well. I've always practiced Ashtanga, but there's another sequence I was using for a long time that i developed myself. I just used it maybe once a week to help maintain some core strength. It's almost as though I've got this Ashtanga mindset and I've developed occasionally a sequence that I'll stick to as rigidly as I would an Ashtanga practice. And I'll use it Therapeutically, I mean, I know the idea of an Ashtanga practice is that you can do that. I'm I'm in the camp that says you can use postures from other areas of yoga <laughs> to help you. So yeah, I developed this uh, kind of prenatal practice from quite early on. Throughout the first, second, and third trimesters, I abandoned the inversions and also backbends. And it wasn't really because I'd read anything. It was just something told me not to do them and so I let go of those things quite quickly and maintained that right up until the end until I was uh, close to giving birth but I did stay active and I'm I'm pleased I did not least because it's the last chance you get for quite a while to do your practice I think I was really aware of this as well thinking there's going to be a baby here soon I need to enjoy this time I did manage to practice but in a very very different way like I've said, I think for me, the, one of the things that I get from my Ashtanga practice is consistency. So even if it's not the sequence that I'm used to or that is prescribed, you know, as part of the primary or second series, as long as there is a prescribed sit sequence and it's consistent, I get the same benefits from the practice. So that worked for me.
0: And what were your expectations for birth? Were you planning like a home birth or did you think you'd have a hospital birth? Did you have a preconceived idea of what you were expecting?
1: I don't know what I would have expected if I was in England giving birth, um, because the options would have been much greater. Where in France, there's quite, it's, it's fairly well known that there's quite a medical approach to giving birth. And um, I think that is changing, certainly in some of the bigger cities. But where we are, it wasn't even an option to have a home birth. The houses are too far from the hospital for them to even allow you to do that, you know, if something goes wrong and they need to send somebody, it's just not close enough. So that wasn't even on the cards. And for me, that was fine. I was quite happy to be taken into the hands of people in the hospital. It was quite a strange experience, to be honest, being in a foreign country um, and being pregnant. I was attending midwife sessions along with several other women, and they were all talking at once and they were all speaking in French and I was learning French, but it was really hard to keep up with what was being said, especially when everybody was talking over each other and you know, there's this frenzy of excitement because everybody's pregnant. And I think I missed a lot of the information and I, I tried to read things online and I tried to talk to friends who'd had babies. But I think I spent a lot of my pregnancy in this kind of blissful ignorance. It was blissful, but it was also ignorance in hindsight. I think I went into the whole thing quite naive, really. It benefited me in some respects because I didn't have any preconceived ideas of what it was going to be like. And I didn't hear any horror stories from other people, so I didn't scare myself with those. But at the same time, I think I was less informed about the different options that would come my way, the different drugs that may or may not be involved, the things that could have been useful to me. I, in hindsight, I wish I'd taken somebody's hypnobirthing course online. But I almost blindly went into this just thinking, well, here I am in France. It's not an option to have a home birth. I'll just do what I'm told and hope that the baby's okay. And That was my main priority. It was kind of taken out of my hands and I let that happen. As it happened, it all turned out okay.
0: Were you seeing like a doctor or a midwife team during the pregnancy? Yeah, you do get frequent appointments with the gynaecologist and they'll check that everything's you know
1: going according to plan and measure all the things that they need to measure and, and you have these sessions with the midwife as well but you're kind of a little bit of a product really. You, just, <laughs> you come in, they do what they need to do they'll show you the scans you know you get to know that things are going okay I don't know what happens if it's not okay because I was really lucky that it that it all was yeah they keep a close eye on you but apart from that it was just a case of growing a baby for me
0: and was there a focus on the advanced maternal age or was that not like an issue where you were
1: Not really. I mean, they did mention it, you know, that I'm in this older age category, Um, but they didn't seem to make a big deal of it. I think probably if I'd had other health issues, maybe they would have done, but because I was kind of low risk in every other way, it wasn't really something they focused on, thankfully. I hate this idea of being, what do they call it, a veteran mother.
0: I felt young. The geriatric mother. The (laughs) geriatric It must have been very strange being in France, one for the language barrier, but I also know that England is very progressive with their birthing and they're a lot more centred around just natural birth. Being in France must have been very different.
1: It was um, in some respects. It was, I almost hate to admit it, but in some respects it was quite nice to have the options taken away from me because, you know, it's hard to make decisions about something like this. It's such an enormous event in our lives and in our bodies. And so it was a bit of a relief to just think, well, these aren't choices. I just have to go with the flow. But at the same time, yeah, it was a little bit frustrating because I'd heard these lovely stories of friends having beautiful home births and having water births. And and actually, that should have been an option to be. It only wasn't an option because on the day that the baby arrived, The one room available in the hospital with a pool and other contraptions for relieving pain uh, was in use. So even that ended up not being an option for me. (laughs) I felt like I missed out a little bit. And even in terms of in the UK, you have... um, National Childbirth Trust, NCT, and they run lots of prenatal classes and groups of expectant mums and dads will get together and they're given lots and lots of advice and encouragement and support in terms of what's to come, what to do once the baby's born. There was none of that here. The only people who are allowed to do anything like that are the people who are medically qualified. So the only preparation you get is through the midwife or through the gynaecologist. It's all within a sort of medical setting. I missed out a little bit on the social side of of becoming a mother as well. That was actually harder, I think, than missing out on the choices in terms of how the baby was born. It felt like a bit of a, a lonely road at times, to be honest. And it was mainly down to the language barrier, but also due to the lack of people like me around me (laughs) and just having to slot into another country's system and way of doing things.
0: How many weeks pregnant were you when you went into labour and what were your first signs of labour?
1: I was 40 weeks exactly to the day which if you use the UK calculation was exactly the date that she'd been she was expected to be born. The French use a different calculation and it's very French (laughs) instead of counting from the first day of your last period they count from the day when the actual love happened so they try to work out which day you made love and made a baby according to their calculation i was due a week later than that so depending on whose calculation you go by the baby either arrived bang on time or one week early it was again it was a fairly straightforward uh, process I started having contractions around two o'clock in the morning on the 31st of December. And uh, by about six or seven o'clock in the morning, the contractions were close enough for my partner to call the hospital. And they said, "Yep, that sounds about right. Why don't you head on over? So we drove to the hospital and they had a look at me and said, well, the baby's head is very, very close. (laughs) She's ready to come out you're not dilated really much at all so go and walk around the hospital and come back in an hour so we did that and that resulted in quite a dramatic episode in the reception area of the hospital where I was doubled up with the pain of contractions and so we went back to the labour ward and they had another look and said yes she's very very low now no wonder it's hurting you but you're still not dilating so let's put you in this room The pool isn't available, so here's a big ball. You can sit on that for a while. And I tried and I tried to breathe and use this ball alone and whatever positions I could put myself in to relieve the pain of the contractions. There came a point, I think the anaesthetist was doing the rounds, and I hadn't ruled out the possibility of an epidural. I was okay with that. In France, it's really standard to give an epidural, so I I was expecting them to offer it. And I was open to the idea of it, but I wasn't necessarily going to accept it. I kind of went into it thinking, I'm going to see what this pain is like when it happens, because I have no idea really, none of us do until it happens, of what it'll be like. And at the point when the anaesthetist was doing the rounds, they said, look, your baby is so low that the minute you dilate, she's going to come really fast. So it's now or never. And I had my sister's voice in my head. She told me, Katie, there are no prizes for being in pain. I know there's lots of stuff on the internet and in books that will tell you there are some prizes for being in pain because there are advantages to not having the epidural. There was an element of distress on my part that was coming into things. I very quickly had to weigh up the choices. You know, Do I have the epidural and risk whatever comes with that? Or do I maintain this? Do I allow this pain to continue and potentially let myself get more and more worked up and transfer that stress to the baby? Then yeah, for me, it was was a no-brainer. I went to the epidural. They administered it. And two things happened. One was that it worked on one side of my body, but not the other. And so I had this kind of dual experience of pain and no pain. And the other one was that they told me that they'd given me the lowest dose, because I'm a small person. But it was what I, I don't quite know what's in those things. I suspected some kind of opioid. I was really spaced out for a while. And I had to say to somebody, it was kind of an intravenous epidural. And I had to tell them in the end, If it's possible, but can you turn it down? (laughs) Uh, Because I can't really, I don't know what's going on. I'm really spaced out. So they altered something and I regained some kind of sense of of what was going on. And at that point, things became quite pleasant, actually. (laughs) But I still wasn't dilating and my waters still hadn't broken. But because I was in labour, they decided we'll try and break your waters so that that might bring things on a little bit. And it just wouldn't. Whatever that sack is made of, mine was really, really sturdy (laughs) Um, and it just wasn't breaking. So eventually they gave me something to make me dilate or to speed up the dilation because the baby was pressing so much. There was about an hour then after of them giving me that between the drugs and the actual event and it was the most blissful hour. It was lovely. I was on the bed. I was in a comfortable position. I was using my breathing techniques. I also had some music playing that was by a soundscape artist I've met at the Paris course called Yota Magam. And it was really, really beautiful. And I was in a really good place. <laughs> and then suddenly they'd had a look and I was fully dilated. And suddenly this circus of people <laughs> burst into the room, (laughs) turned on the lights, they were chatting loudly, one of them had this really strong perfume (laughs) on and it completely changed the atmosphere and I guess for some people that's useful because maybe they need the extra energy at that point, I mean it was nine o'clock at night I think so I've been in theory from the beginning of the contractions to the birth itself it was 17 hours or something. So, for a lot of people, I imagine you're quite tired and you need some energy at that point. But I was in this really nice, chilled kind of place, <laughs> and this circus of ladies entered the room. So, my partner very gently and calmly asked them if they could just tone it down a bit. And thankfully, they did. And then it was right, we're, we're in position, let's go. And I had a midwife who was just fantastic, even though it was in French, and I was under the influence of whatever had been put in me. She gave the clearest instructions. The baby came out with just five pushes. And I think that was partly due to these very, very simple and clear instructions and calm instructions that the midwife had given me. But also, I used my abdominal muscles really, really consciously for kind of rolling the baby out if that makes sense so contracting the muscles from the top down and it seemed to work really well they were surprised as me and my partner actually that she popped out as quickly as she did (laughs) Um, and suddenly there she was our little firework exploded into the world on new year's eve at 20 past nine and i was a mummy
0: so was that the first of the of the year That was the
1: 31st, yeah, 31st of December. So, yeah, just as the fireworks were beginning to explode outside, this little person emerged into the world as well. And they put her on my belly. Uh, My partner (laughs) stared (laughs) in shock. (laughs) I think the first thing I said was, oh, she looks like Ellie, my sister. And this little creature latched onto my breast. And, yeah, there she was just that incredible moment that well, it's my friend calls this an everyday miracle and I can't think of a better way of describing it to be honest this is happening all the time and it's the most incredible thing (laughs) so yeah that's how we got there
0: what was your expectation versus the reality and how did you go settling into being a new mother
1: Well, again, it's different in France. So in England these days, if you have a straightforward pregnancy, you can be home the same day. In France, if you're a new mother, you're kept in hospital for five days. And for me, that was absolutely fine. Uh, There are some people who don't like that. It's like being in parenting school for, for a few days. You know, they'll show you how to do everything. For me, what was really, really useful was the breastfeeding. A lot of women will say the same thing. It's something that you expect to come really naturally because that's what our bodies are designed to do, and it's really hard or your body just doesn't do what you expect it to do. I had the milk had come in and my boobs just kept getting bigger and harder and lumpier. there were just these mountains of hard mass the baby couldn't feed properly, and thankfully, the midwives and the nurses they tried absolutely everything you know they instructed me to use the hot water or warm water on my breasts when I was in the shower. There were ways of massaging the breasts. There were ways of um, bringing just gently drawing milk out. And and you could see it into a warm glass of water. You could see these streams of milk coming down as the ducts open. Um, We used a kind of mud pack. Agile, I think they call it. It's kind of a clay pack that they put to my boobs. They did everything basically to make sure that I could breastfeed. And I honestly think that without that, I'd have struggled. My, my sister had something similar when her second daughter was born. She ended up having to go back into hospital because she had double mastitis and she had to have antibiotics. Given to her intravenously, and she was in a real bad way. And I have a feeling the same thing would have happened to me had I not been in, in hospital. Yeah, there's this expectation that you're just going to be a mother, the baby comes out, and you can do all these things, and then then you can't. <laughs> um, so that was the, the the first lesson, I suppose, that came. You go home feeling like you've got just enough skills <laughs> to keep this little person alive suddenly there you are at home with this new little life that you're fully responsible for. It's incredible. I don't think there was anything that didn't or live up to my expectations or um, conjured up some images in my head that weren't right. The thing for me, and I think it's like this for a lot of people, was isolation. You know, at the time we were living in a part of Brittany where we were very isolated. It was a small village with just a few people. Um, So apart from not having my family around me, I also didn't have friends very close by. Um, I did a a lot of talking to the baby. She's always had lots of verbal stimulation, that's for sure. We we found our way like, like most people do. The other thing that was really hard for me was that I was in between the British and the French tax systems. I was sort of transitioning my, yeah, my situation. And what that meant, although it was resolved a year later, but at the time it meant that I didn't have any maternity pay at all from anyone. So I had to get back to work as soon as possible, which wasn't really what I wanted, but it was just what was necessary. And that was quite hard. Again, I was quite lucky because I work from home. And as it happened, a childminder lived over the road from us, and she had some capacity to sort of take our baby part-time, and it also meant that I could express milk and continue to breastfeed, and I'd just make milk deliveries through the day, <laughs> running across the road with these bottles of milk past the local cows, and yeah, look what I've done. It's not just you girls. So that was quite good that I was able to continue to breastfeed and or express milk where necessary. But I would have liked a slightly longer maternity leave, but it just wasn't possible. So I think I got the second best option, really. That bit didn't quite live up to my expectations. But, you know, we were gifted a belated maternity leave when lockdown came along. I really felt, even though she was 15 months old at that point, it really felt like I'd been given this extra time to spend with my little girl. and, And it was lovely.
0: How old was your daughter when you went back to work? So, she was only
1: three months old. She was still very little. I'm pleased it was a part-time arrangement and I was very pleased she was only over the road. I think the first day she went, I just, I didn't do any work. I just spent the whole day at home crying, (laughs) missing my baby and wondering if she was okay. But yeah, it helps that she was literally across the road and I, I could go and see her if I wanted to. Yeah, she was young. In France though, again, this is another thing that's different. The culture is very different here. It's not uncommon for somebody's baby to go to a childminder at three or four months old. Most people don't take six, nine, 12 months off work to, to be with their child. It's pretty standard. They go back to work
0: really quickly. What was your recovery from the birth like?
1: I had minor tearing, so there wasn't, I think I had two stitches or something, so there wasn't really much to put right there. And like everybody, you feel a bit loose, don't you, afterwards, it's kind of like you're wearing the wrong clothes or something all the time. But I really credit my yoga practice, you know, with with me being able to operate quite effectively again, quite quickly after the birth. Yeah, I felt strong quite quickly. Um, I did take it easy, I didn't let my ego get the better of me, and I'm pleased about that. But I did feel like my body resumed its former shape and ability quite quickly. You know, a lot of people, I think when they're pregnant, they think, oh, I should do pregnancy yoga. I always think that's not the time to start yoga. (laughs) The time to start yoga is long before you get pregnant. And then you've got these deep, deep foundations that will serve you. That's definitely what happened in my case. But I did take it very, very slowly, followed all the advice. I waited um, at least six weeks before attempting anything. I must admit, it didn't take me long to actually just try being on my mat, just be on it. <laughs> um, and lying on my tummy was really nice. I mean, there's so much pleasure to be had from very, very simple things when you, when you first come back to your mat. But then I got into a little bit of a pickle, actually, during the pregnancy over this diastasis recti phenomenon, which is widely discussed on Instagram. (laughs) This is possibly the only thing I got a little bit swept away with in terms of horror stories. It wasn't so much the birth itself, but this doming of the belly and the, the, uh, the possibility that my muscles would never knit together again. And I did get a little bit, I think I got a bit obsessed with this uh, idea and I was so so keen for this not to happen that I took great care in developing a postnatal primary series practice for myself which I've since published on my blog although I did publish it I think a year after (laughs) developing it And, um, and it was a very very gradual return to practice but it was also a very considered and structured return to practice you know, I know that the Joyce family would say, have three months before you come back to practice. I think after six weeks, I felt strong. I felt ready to do something, but I also didn't want to just launch myself back into a full practice and risk damaging myself. I, I was also aware that with breastfeeding, you know, there were still lots of hormones in my body um, that could make me a little bit vulnerable. So yeah, I developed this very detailed postnatal primary practice. And I spent a lot of time, I described earlier these belly pops that I'd learned to do when I was doing the training course in Paris. And I used those to try and rebuild some of the deep, deep muscles as well. And that was quite, that formed quite a big part of my practice at the beginning. And then gradually built in variations on the sun salutations that were progressively more demanding, but over a period of weeks. And I'd build up the number of sun salutations I was doing over a period of weeks as well. There were certain transitions and postures that I still wasn't doing early on. And it was a long, long time, even after I'd pretty much started doing the full primary series again. It was still four or five months before I was doing backbends. I took a long, long time to come back to backbends. There was no considered reason behind that. I'd like to say I did lots of research and I've got all sorts of impressive anatomical reasons for it, but it just didn't feel like the right thing for me during the pregnancy and after the pregnancy. So I just waited until things felt a little bit more stable. And even then I was really, really tentative as I approached them, listening so closely for any sort of sensations of pulling or discomfort in my my abdomen. But yeah, it was it was a real learning journey for me, actually. And it was a really nice opportunity to get all nerdy about my practice again and, and dive into some of the you know, anatomical detail. And nice to share it with other people on my blog as well, because I know that I'd scrabbled around looking for information. And there's, there is quite a lot out there. And I think that's one thing I really love about this podcast is that it gives people insight into the different ways that people come back to their practice. And I think what you can conclude, really, at the end of it is that there is no one way that is perfect for everybody, as with the practice in itself, when you're not pregnant. But, yeah, you really get a sense that you have to find your own way, really. You know, I've seen people who are doing all sorts of backbends and inversions and all sorts of things that, for me, weren't right, but for them it clearly was. It's quite a personal thing, really.
0: And we'll definitely have to put the link to your blog with that postpartum information in the show notes. During your pregnancy too, you talked about having some issues. Was it with your sacroiliac joint?
1: hmm It was the sacroiliac joint.
0: And how did that feel during your postpartum recovery?
1: That was actually okay. I think probably because even though the level of hormones were at different levels at that point, I actually think it was probably because towards the end of the pregnancy, my practice had really, really softened anyway. So anything that I could have been doing that would have antagonized that problem, I wasn't doing it anymore anyway. I also i had been wearing a kind of an elasticated belt around my hips to try and maintain some strength and structure in that area. And it was working well. And I used that quite a lot post as well um, I was doing lots of walking walking was the new yoga for a while for <laughs> quite a long time and I was using this belt a lot because I also took a very steady and slow approach to coming back to my practice and a lot of that approach involved working on the the deep deep core muscles and the transverse abdominae and I think I actually solved my own problem with core strength work and a little bit of extra external help from this belt that I've been wearing.
0: Talk to us a little bit about how you find balancing family life with the practice now. Are you still working and are you still able to find time to do your practice and how regularly are you doing that?
1: I'm really lucky that I work from home. and Once my partner has taken my daughter to nursery, Here I am at home alone, and of course, I have a job to do, but I manage my time in a way that means I can do my practice most days. I'd say I do my practice about five days a week now, which for me is fine. And if it's less than that, that's okay, You know, if the childminder is on holiday and uh, as she was recently and Iris was with me for three weeks, I don't think I actually got my mat many times. But as I said, parenting brings you this new kind of flexibility, which has more to do with your attitude than your physical ability. But generally, I can practice around five days a week. And, and that's great. <laughs> it's really nice. But being freelance, the work ebbs and flows. So there are some weeks where there isn't much work and there are other weeks where there's loads and you can't afford to just not do the work because there's lots of it. So again, the opportunities to practice will vary. I don't get up at the crack of dawn before everybody else to fit my practice in. I never have, to be honest. I'm not an eshtangi who is up at five o'clock doing their practice before before day breaks. I love the idea of it. I think I did it a couple of times during my pregnancy, but purely because I couldn't sleep. I just kept waking up at that time. And it's lovely. There's no denying it's a nice, quiet part of the day. It doesn't need to be like that in my life. It's not necessary tend to do my practice probably around 11 o'clock in the morning most of the time. So it is still a big part of my life, but I'm okay with it if it's it's not happened that day. (laughs) In terms of my yoga practice and my parenting, I like to think, I don't know if it's true, that I am less reactive in situations where children can be challenging. And especially at the moment, we're moving into a new phase where there's a lot of testing of boundaries starting to happen. And I like to think that I don't respond sort of instinctively and that I give myself time to consider how I'm going to respond to a situation. And I think that does come from a regular long-term practice. I must admit I'm at this point now where, if anything... Being that way has made me a little bit soft. I think I'm inclined to be a slightly soft mummy, which is a lovely thing, and it's nice having cuddles. It's finally dawned on me that part of my role as a parent is making a child feel good doesn't just involve giving cuddles and being understanding all the time. Part of making a child feel good is giving them boundaries that they are aware of. It's about helping them to learn how to be in the world and what's right and wrong. So I'm now at this point of having to recognise when my daughter is testing the boundaries or if she's crying or shouting because she has a need that I need to fulfil somehow, a genuine need. And this is the part of parenting. For me, it's the most difficult part. And I hope that my yoga practice will give me the ability to have clarity in those moments and tune into what her needs are and what's really happening in the situation Yeah, it's, it's hard it's fair to say that giving birth for me was the easy bit being a parent <laughs> this is the bit that's really hard and that I don't mean hard as in oh poor me I never sleep and all that stuff I just mean it's hard to know if you're doing the right thing oh any of us want this for our child to be happy and also I want her to be a nice person <laughs> And it's a huge weight of responsibility. It's my job to make sure, or mine and my partner's job, to make sure that she turns out well (laughs) and that she's happy in the world. That's where I'm up to with my parenting journey.
0: Breastfeeding, are you still breastfeeding, or at what point did the breastfeeding journey end for you?
1: Uh, I breastfed up until she was 14 months old. I was only breastfeeding full time. Until she was about six months old and then it felt my like I just couldn't satisfy her. Even when I was expressing milk, there was enough, but it wasn't. And I wasn't one of these women who the milk is just flowing from them. It was like it was almost like I had to try to make them the milk and I had to eat quite a lot. And I think at six months we decided to introduce some formula as well and actually that really helped it took a little bit of the burden off me and gave my partner a bit more involvement in the feeding process and it also meant that the baby went to bed with a nice full tummy at night instead of whatever trickle of milk was available from me but it was only i think there were only two or three months of her doing that before she just decided she didn't want that at all no formula milk I'll have what you've got left in your boobs, but I don't want a bottle anymore. And so I talked to the doctor about it and he, he said, well, that's okay. Just feed her as much as you can and make sure that she's, you know, you're giving her yogurt or other forms of calcium. You can try her with, with milk, but not until later on, cow's milk until later on. I continued breastfeeding for as long as I could. And she'd always have a breakfast from me. And then I think she just got a bit more interested in solid food. But we'd always have this morning feed that continued right up until 14 months. And then it just really felt like we were going through the motions, really. I really wasn't sure there was anything left in there at all. (laughs) And so I tried it one day, uh, just taking her straight from her bedroom to the breakfast table. And she didn't bat an eyelid. She clearly didn't really need that anymore. And actually, even for for a few weeks before that, I noticed, It was like she was almost doing it for me. (laughs) I think she just didn't need
0: it after that point. Did you have any challenges with sleeping? No, I think when we introduced
1: some formula milk as well as the breastfeeding, that's when the sleeping settled a lot, so around six or seven months old. That's when she really started to sleep a lot better. And I do think it was to do with her not being as hungry in the night. Yeah, the sleep thing. I don't believe these parents that say my child has slept through the night since she was what, four months old or something. <laughs> I think it's a myth. I just think even when your child, you know, in France there's this thing, elle fait ses nuit, does she make her nights? It's, it's like a big milestone and everybody asks it and they. it's kind of like you're not judged on the basis of whether or not your child makes her nights or sleeps through. But it is this all important question that you get asked all the time. So you kind of I think I have actually lied about it a couple of times just to make the conversation go away. <laughs> but actually, you know, even when they do, theres it only takes, you know, a bit of constipation or a, a tooth or a nightmare. Or it can be so many things that wake up a child and and they haven't had a full night's sleep. So, You know, she's been sleeping pretty well, I think, for for quite a long time now. But of course, she wakes up in the night and we've just had quite a warm spell over the summer. So she's been very thirsty in the night. So there's been quite a lot of waking up recently. You know, it's nothing we can't really cope with. At first, the sleep deprivation was the same as it is for everybody, especially... When you're breastfeeding and you are just the, and they're having a, a growth spurt and you're pinned to the sofa or wherever you choose to do it with this ravenous little creature just <laughs> taking every ounce of energy you've got that's quite tough but it's fairly short-lived really that period and and again i think the practice and this was the another reason i didn't want to launch myself into a hard Ashtanga practice really quickly is You're quite depleted at that stage anyway. You don't need something else to be draining your energy. I mean, ideally, your practice would build your energy anyway, not deplete you. But I think that's even more important when you're coming back to it after pregnancy. You really don't need something else to be taking your energy. You want to come away feeling ready to be a good mom.
0: In your intro, you said it's just you and your partner and your daughter. Were there any thoughts of having more children or were you always just going to have one or you're happy to just have one?
1: We never said, okay, let's do this and maybe we'll have another one. I suppose it wasn't off the cards at the beginning, but it was never something we planned ahead. Since having our daughter, we just feel he's 40, 48, I'm 40. It's, you know, it's hard having a child, does not it? It's absolutely lovely. There's no denying that, but it is hard. I don't feel like I have got the energy and patience, I suppose, to, to have more children. I'd rather have one and do it well, <laughs> or as well as I can at least. And I also just feel incredibly lucky that everything has been as straightforward as it has been. I'm just happy to settle with what I've got. I feel very, very lucky and we're happy to stop there.
0: Final question. Is there any information that you wish you'd known before you had your daughter and, or something that you'd like or you think that's important for people to know?
1: There's only one thing. <laughs> this sounds really trivial. It's just as a little minor warning. <laughs> so if you've not had a child before, nobody tells you. <laughs> But when the umbilical cord is ready to drop off, it stinks. It's horrible. <laughs> You've got this beautiful little creature and then and then suddenly, why does she smell of vinegar? <laughs> and that's, that's the only thing I think I, I wish somebody had told me. The rest of it, you know, people do tell you your life will never be the same again. And they're absolutely right. You don't know at the time that <laughs> the extent of this. People do tell you that. No, it's just it's the rancid belly button, (laughs) the rancid umbilical cord that I'd like somebody to to, to have warned me about. But apart from that, it's just a beautiful thing. I think those of us who can just have to be incredibly grateful that we can.
0: Thanks so much for sharing your story today. Thank you for inviting me. It's
1: it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you and an even bigger pleasure to hear other people's stories
0: as well. So um, thanks for making the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the 7th Series podcast. Please subscribe to keep up to date with new episodes as they're released. Help this show to reach more people by going to Apple Podcasts to rate or leave a review. You can connect with me or share episodes on Facebook and Instagram. Find more information on the show and guests at seventhseries.net. Please tune in again for another episode of the 7th Series.